This is section ten of Mark Twain, a biography. Volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter one hundred and fourteen. The Whittier birthday speech. It was the night of December seventeenth, eighteen seventy seven, that Mark Twain made his unfortunate speech at the dinner given by the Atlantic staff to John G. Whittier on his seventieth birthday. Clemens had attended a number of the dinners which the Atlantic gave on one occasion or another, and had provided a part of the entertainment. It is only fair to say that his after-dinner speeches at such times had been regarded as very special events, genuine triumphs of humor and delivery. But on this particular occasion he determined to outdo himself to prepare something unusual, startling, and something altogether unheard of. When Mark Twain had an impulse like that, it was possible for it to result in something dangerous, especially in those earlier days. This time it produced a bombshell, not just an ordinary bombshell, or even a twelve-inch projectile, but a shell of planetary size. It was a sort of hoax, always a doubtful plaything, and in this case it brought even quicker and more terrible retribution than usual. It was an imaginary presentation of three disreputable frontier tramps, who at some time had imposed themselves on a lonely miner as Longfellow, Emerson, and Holmes, quoting apposite selections from their verses to the accompaniment of cards and drink, and altogether conducting themselves in a most unsavory fashion. At the end came the enlightenment that these were not what they pretended to be, but only impostors, disgusting frauds. A feature like that would be a doubtful thing to try in any cultured atmosphere. The thought of associating, ever so remotely, those three old bummers which he had conjured up with the venerable and venerated Emerson, Longfellow, and Holmes, the Olympian Trinity, seems ghastly enough today, and must have seemed even more so then. But Clemens, dazzled by the rainbow splendor of his conception, saw in it only a rare colossal humor which would fairly lift and bear his hearers along on a tide of mirth. He did not show his effort to anyone beforehand. He wanted its full beauty to burst upon the entire company as a surprise. It did that. Howells was Toastmaster, and when he came to present Clemens, he took particular pains to introduce him as one of his foremost contributors and dearest friends. Here, he said, was a humorist who never left you hanging your head for having enjoyed his joke. Thirty years later Clemens himself wrote of his impressions as he rose to deliver his speech. I vaguely remember some of the details of that gathering. Dimly I can see a hundred people, no, perhaps fifty, shadowy figures, sitting at tables, feeding, ghosts now to me, and nameless forevermore. I don't know who they were, but I can very distinctly see, seated at the grand table and facing the rest of us, Mr. Emerson, supernaturally grave, unsmiling, Mr. Whittier, grave, lovely, his beautiful spirit shining out of his face, Mr. Longfellow, with his silken white hair and his 
benignant face dr oliver wendell holmes flashing smiles and affection and all good fellowship everywhere like a rose diamond whose facets are being turned toward the light first one way and then another a charming man and always fascinating whether he was talking or whether he was sitting still what he would call still but what would be more or less motion to other people i can see those figures with entire distinctness across this abyss of time william winter the poet had just preceded him and it seemed a moment aptly chosen for his so different theme and then to quote howells the amazing mistake the bewildering blunder the cruel catastrophe was upon us after the first two or three hundred words when the general plan and purpose of the burlesque had developed when the names of longfellow emerson and holmes began to be flung about by those bleary outcasts and their verses given that sorry association those atlantic diners became petrified with amazement and horror too late then the speaker realized his mistake he could not stop he must go on to the ghastly end and somehow he did it while there fell a silence weighing many tons to the square inch which deepened from moment to moment and was broken only by the hysterical and blood-curdling laughter of a single guest whose name shall not be handed down to infamy howells can remember little more than that but clemens recalls that one speaker made an effort to follow him bishop the novelist and that bishop didn't last long it was not many sentences after his first before he began to hesitate and break and lose his grip and totter and wobble and at last he slumped down in a limp and mushy pile the next man had not strength to rise and somehow the company broke up howells's next recollection is of being in a room of the hotel and of hearing charles dudley warner saying in the gloom well mark you're a funny fellow he remembers how after a sleepless night clemens went out to buy some bric-a-brac with a soul far from bric-a-brac and returned to hartford in a writhing agony of spirit he believed that he was ruined forever so far as his boston associations were concerned and when he confessed all the tragedy to mrs clemens it seemed to her also that the mistake could never be wholly repaired the fact that certain papers quoted the speech and spoke well of it and certain readers who had not listened to it thought it enormously funny gave very little comfort but perhaps his chief concern was the ruin which he believed he had brought upon howells he put his heart into a brief letter my dear howells my sense of disgrace does not abate it grows i see that it is going to add itself to my list of permanencies a list of humiliations that extends back to when i was seven years old 
and which keep on persecuting me regardless of my repentances i feel that my misfortune has injured me all over the country therefore it will be best that i retire from before the public at present it will hurt the atlantic for me to appear in its pages now so it is my opinion and my wife's that the telephone story had better be suppressed will you return those proofs or revises to me so that i can use the same on some future occasion it seems as if i must have been insane when i wrote that speech and saw no harm in it no disrespect toward those men whom i reverenced so much and what shame i brought upon you after what you said in introducing me it burns me like fire to think of it the whole matter is a dreadful subject let me drop it here at least on paper penitently yours mark so all in a moment his world had come to an end as it seemed but howells's letter which came rushing back by first mail brought hope it was a fatality howells said one of those sorrows into which a man walks with his eyes wide open no one knows why howells assured him that longfellow emerson and holmes would so consider it beyond doubt that charles eliot norton had already expressed himself exactly in the right spirit concerning it howells declared that there was no intention of dropping mark twain's work from the atlantic you are not going to be floored by it there is more justice than that even in this world especially as regards me just call the sore spot well i can say more and with better heart in praise of your good feeling which was what i always liked in you since this thing happened than i could before it was agreed that he should at once write a letter to longfellow emerson and holmes and he did write laying his heart bare to them longfellow and holmes answered in a fine spirit of kindliness and miss emerson wrote for her father in the same tone emerson had not been offended for he had not heard the speech having arrived even then at that stage of semi-oblivion as to immediate things which eventually so completely shut him away longfellow's letter made light of the whole matter the newspapers he said had caused all the mischief a bit of humor at a dinner-table talk is one thing a report of it in the morning papers is another one needs the lamplight and the scenery these failing what was meant in jest assumes a serious aspect i do not believe that anybody was much hurt certainly i was not and holmes tells me that he was not so i think you may dismiss the matter from your mind without further remorse it was a very pleasant dinner and i think whittier enjoyed it very much holmes likewise referred to it as a trifle it never occurred to me for a moment to take offense or to feel wounded by your playful use of my name i have heard some mild questionings as to whether even in fun it was good taste to associate the names of the authors with the absurdly unlike personalities attributed to them but it seems to be an open question 
Two of my friends, gentlemen of education and the highest social standing, were infinitely amused by your speech, and stoutly defended it against the charge of impropriety. More than this, one of the cleverest and best-known ladies we have among us was highly delighted with it. Miss Emerson's letter was to Mrs. Clemens, and its home-like New England fashion did much to lift the gloom. Dear Mrs. Clemens, At New Year's our family always meets to spend two days together. Today my father came last, and brought with him Mr. Clemens' letter, so that I read it to the assembled family, and I have come right upstairs to write to you about it. My sister said, Oh, let father write, but my mother said, No, don't wait for him, go now, don't stop to pick that up, go this minute and write. I think that is a noble letter. Tell them so. First, let me say that no shadow of indignation has ever been in any of our minds. The night of the dinner, my father says, he did not hear Mr. Clemens' speech. He was too far off, and my mother says that when she read it to him the next day it amused him. But what you will want is to know, without any softening, how we did feel. We were disappointed. We have liked almost everything we have ever seen over Mark Twain's signature. It has made us like the man, and we have delighted in the fun. Father has often asked us to repeat certain passages of The Innocents Abroad, and of a speech at a London dinner in 1872, and we all expect both to approve and to enjoy when we see his name. Therefore, when we read this speech it was a real disappointment. I said to my brother that it didn't seem good or funny, and he said, no, it was unfortunate. Still, some of those quotations were very good. And he gave them with relish, and my father laughed, though never having seen a card in his life, he couldn't understand them like his children. My mother read it lightly, and had hardly any second thoughts about it. To my father it is as if it had not been. He never quite heard, never quite understood it, and he forgets easily and entirely. I think it doubtful whether he writes to Mr. Clemens, for he is old and long ago gave up answering letters. I think you can see just how bad and how little bad it was as far as we are concerned, and this lovely heart-breaking letter makes up for our disappointment in our much-liked author, and restores our former feeling about him. Ellen T. Emerson the sorrow dulled a little as the days passed, but just after Christmas Clemens wrote to Howells, I haven't done a stroke of work since the Atlantic dinner, but I'm going to try tomorrow. How could I ever... Ah, well, I am a great and sublime fool, but then I am God's fool, and all his work must be contemplated with respect. So as long as that unfortunate speech is remembered, there will be differences of opinion as to its merits and propriety. Clemens himself, reading it for the first time in nearly thirty years, said, I find it gross, coarse. Well, I needn't go on with particulars. I don't like any part of it, from the beginning to the end. I find it always offensive and detestable. 
How do I account for this change of view? I don't know. But almost immediately afterward he gave it another consideration and reversed his opinion completely. All the spirit and delight of his old first conception returned, and, preparing it for publication, he wrote, North American Review, December 1907, now with comment included in the volumes of speeches, also see Appendix O at the end of last volume, I have read it twice, and unless I'm an idiot it hasn't a single defect in it, from the first word to the last. It is just as good as good can be. It is smart, it is saturated with humor. There isn't a suggestion of coarseness or vulgarity in it anywhere. It was altogether like Mark Twain to have those two absolutely opposing opinions in that brief time. For, after all, it was only a question of the human point of view, and Mark Twain's points of view were likely to be as extremely human as they were varied. Of course, the first of these impressions, the verdict of the fresh mind uninfluenced by the old conception, was the more correct one. The speech was decidedly out of place in that company. The skit was harmless enough, but it was of the Comstock grain. It lacked refinement, and, what was still worse, it lacked humor, at least the humor of a kind suited to that long-ago company of listeners. It was another of those grievous mistakes which genius, and not talent, can make, for genius is a sort of possession. The individual is pervaded, dominated for a time, by an angel or an imp, and he seldom, of himself, is able to discriminate between his controls. A literary imp was always lying in wait for Mark Twain, the imp of the burlesque, tempting him to do the outre, the outlandish, the shocking thing. It was this that Olivia Clemens had to labor hardest against, the cheapening of his own high purpose with an extravagant false note, at which sincerity, conviction, and artistic harmony took wings and fled away. Notably, he did a good burlesque now and then, but his fame would not have suffered if he had been delivered altogether from his besetting temptation. End of chapter 114 The Whittier Birthday Speech Read by John Greenman